Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnikian. We come to you on a weekly basis to try to review some important cases that come down from the Court of Appeal, California Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit, sometimes the United States Supreme Court. Uh, we're apparently, according to my wife, not that good and not that entertaining, but we'll try to do better today. She's probably right, but we can always try harder. So uh, it's a, this the reviews I, about you are, aren't good either, but but that's okay. That's because they only come from my wife. <laughs> Listen, we try our best here. We try to get through four cases in about twenty minutes each week. It's mini law school. Review some important cases that have come down that affect plaintiffs' practices. If you don't like it, we're going to give out at the very end of the podcast uh, Sean's home address. You can go over and visit with him and make suggestions about how you can, how we can make this podcast better. Nope, nope. I'm not accepting visitors. But today we have some. How about if they come with In and Out? Then everyone's free to come. Come one, come all. Yeah, In and Out, In and Out. Welcome anytime. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. So you can find us online, by the way, at kbklawyers.com. We put on seminars occasionally, and uh, you know, free CLE seminars with with free wine and booze sometimes. No booze, just wine, beer and wine maybe. Uh, but, you know, it's a great resource. Uh, we like to do this because it keeps us current. It helps out. It helps give back, get back to the community. And we actually have been getting positive feedback. But I would have to agree with Brian's wife. We are not funny. We're not entertaining. It's not that great of a show. I think we're funny. I think we're entertaining. And I think we provide an important public service. And the cost, of course, is, as my mother would say, you get what you pay for, right? That's right. This is right. absolutely free. free. Yeah. Absolutely free. Yeah. All right, so, let's go. What cases are we covering? So we're covering four cases. We're going to do a uh, California Court of Appeal case that has to do with attorney referral services. So this is more like a cautionary tale, and it kind of lays out what qualifies as an attorney referral service. Because there's people out there, look, at the end of the day, some people work with them. and We'll talk about the case in a second. Let's go on. Okay, again. This fine. is where we give people fine. the preview. Fine, preview, fine. Uh, then we got to talk about uh, release of liability uh, when it comes to self-storage places. Um, then we're going to talk about a motion for reconsideration of a choice of law provision in a very tragic but interesting uh, case. And lastly, we're going to go over the joint employer doctrine, a topic we've talked about before, but it's in a different contract context this time. It has to do with public employees. All right. So let's start with our first case, which is Jackson versus LegalMatch.com. Uh, as we're recording this, this case is, has generated a certain amount of interest and buzz in the legal community. It's been in the papers. Is Legal Match like a legal dating site? Yes, yes. It's a legal dating site for clients who are trying to find lawyers. Well, not to date, and, but dire. You know, not surprisingly, a number of these kind of business enterprises have arisen with the advent of the internet. Uh, with people looking for lawyers, about 90% of the people in the United States don't have ready access to a lawyer. They can't pick up their phone and call a lawyer. They don't know a lawyer. So they're looking for lawyers. And as a result of that, um, technology sort of meeting the needs of the law have given rise to companies like LegalMatch.com. And from what I can understand from reading this opinion, I think it was for about $10,000 a year, a lawyer could subscribe and be on a various different types of sort of panels that this LegalMatch.com had. Right, and it's limited to different geographic areas, and they just they don't just throw everyone on there. In fact, this lawyer, Dorian Jackson, had to be on a wait list until he could be listed in his area, wherever that is. Um, but what ultimately ended up happening is that the lawyer didn't pay for his Legal Match subscription, so Legal Match sued him to collect on that unpaid bill. Jackson cross-claimed on the basis that Legal Match is, is operating an uncertified 
qualified lawyer referral service in violation of a specific business and professions code that um, sixty one fifty five. That's right. That that, and, that governs uh, referral service, which requires every legal referral service to be certified by the state bar and to be at least regulated by the state bar. So, for example, when I was president of the LA County Bar, LA County Bar is a very active legal referral source service, and people would get hooked up with a lawyer and the lawyers would pay the cost to the LA County Bar. And the LA County Bar generated a tremendous amount of revenue doing exactly that, providing that kind of service. The money came from the lawyers. It didn't come from the clients. But the LA County Bar was a registered legal referral service. And this sort of comes out of uh, around the time that legal advertising became legal and there was more um, access to justice this way, which is a good thing. The problem is that this website was not a... um, certified or registered legal referral service, right? Yeah, that's right. And and bec- and their argument for why well, first of all, Jackson was making this argument so he can argue that the contract that was he was in was illegal and unenforceable. That's why he's making this argument. But in response, legalmatch.com was arguing that we are not uh, a legal referral service. We do not qualify with the definition. We don't screen. We don't right. provide any information. Right. All the we bulk do- of their argument, by the way, hinged on that—that that they don't screen. They don't. They don't look at the merits of the case. All they do is connect a potential client with a potential attorney. That's it. That's all they do. So, so they made that argument, and in making that argument, they relied on different things. They said that this is how the word referral should be interpreted. And how did the Court of Appeal react to that? They said, no, referral is not a complex term. Right. We can look at the plain meaning. We don't have to engage in a whole rigmarole of statutory interpretation and in trying to figure out What's the interesting about this, Sean, is that obviously the these statute 6155, which was last amended in 1994 – um, when probably many of the people listening to this podcast weren't even practicing law, the internet really hadn't come along. And it wasn't something that was that was out there. And so when this statute, and, and many of these statutes regulating lawyers are before the advent of the internet, but nevertheless, uh, referral means referral. So it, it really didn't matter to the court here where things stand with respect right it's to a pretty common sense word in fact the section where this discussion is done is the plain and common sense meaning of referral that that's how the court of appeal refers to it um the legal match here was making the argument that you got to look at the aba model model rules which say that a uh, legal referral service not just refers but also does some sort of a screening and the court of appeal said no we don't we don't have to do that here because california has a business and professions code statute that specifically governs this stuff and there's no term of art in there there's but why no- is it important so why is this important well i can think of several important reasons why first of, of all slippery slope right it it leads to running and capping it leads to the possibility that if you don't call this an improper referral service because there is money being changed hands, what would be any different than somebody operating a website and saying, look, we're referring, but we refer each case we refer, you know, we decide how much we're going to charge for this referral. Yeah, and, and and by no means are we any sort of ethics experts here. But and I also think one of no, the reasons no, is no, no, not ethics. Experts. We're definitely not ethics experts here. But one of the reasons is because when it's a registered a referral service, they can be overseen by the state bar. Right. They can they can be regulated. It, otherwise, Same you'd reason. have companies like Google getting into it and and putting out all kinds of advertisements, and there will be no governing entity to say, hey, you can't say that in the advertisement. Same same reason, Sean. We can't be engaged in a in a. We can't have a state here. Where people engage the practice of law who aren't lawyers, 
because of the regulation by the bar, because of the education, which is a hot debate right now. So um, I see this as sort of the trend. I see that a lot of these websites, and we've all seen this in our practice, where the different websites have gone um, potentially too far. Uh, People are getting cases on a constant basis. One of the complaints I constantly have is that this mass advertising that goes on out there, uh, make sure the public needs to make sure that they're getting lawyers who are qualified. Because if cases are going to lawyers that have never tried a case in their life, what does that tell you about the lawyers? Yeah, it's a real concern. Look, just because you haven't tried a case doesn't mean you're a bad lawyer, but you may end up with cases that have major potential value. And when you have lawyers that not aren't so experienced, they might undersell the case. They might not see theories of liability that are there. And the clients well, are being underserved by that. More significant than that is that if the defense knows that the lawyers you've hired don't try cases, right. they're going to lowball you. Right. It reduces the value of the case and they might be better off referring it to somebody else or, uh, you know, I the, think it's the client might be better off vetting other lawyers and really knowing who they're signing up. It's incumbent upon with. the profession to make sure that there is enough information for clients to make an adequate decision, and it's incumbent upon the clients to do an adequate investigation. One thing I see, though, is that younger clients, you know, under 40, for example, will do more due diligence in investigating somebody before they simply call them up. Older clients, people that are, you know, God forbid my age or older. That's very old. Probably aren't necessarily getting their information from the internet, but they might have somebody else doing it for them. Or if they do are doing it, they might be going into it blind. And, and all kidding aside, the older population are, are typically more vulnerable. So, you know, it is a real Thank concern. You. Are you going to look and, after me? <laughs> no, no. I don't get paid enough for that. Um, but really, this case, while I, I know that legal referral services aren't out there listening, I'm sure there's people out there that work with them and there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a, a great way to market and get business. But be careful. Know who you're working with. Make sure that they're 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 a legitimate company. No matter how good their website looks, and no matter how much they're charging you, you know they might not be a legitimate company. So it's something to watch out for. Too bad the public doesn't actually listen to this, as opposed to lawyers. Next case is Konofsky versus At Your Door Cell Storage. Um, the reason we put this case in, this is a court of appeal case, also from the second DCA. The reason we put this case in is because. Uh, I constantly see clients coming in complaining about these self-storage facilities, right? They're, they, they're getting stuck with unnecessary insurance or damage occurs or they want to bring class actions. And separate and apart from probably the advent of um, arbitration agreements, mandatory arbitration agreements, is one of the issues you see is this claim about who's responsible for the damaged property. So I thought that was interesting about it. I also thought the other thing interesting about it was that um, it does sort of read like a law, um, like a law review or a um, bar exam question, right? Yeah. When I first saw this, I asked Brian, "Why is this a published opinion?" Um, and when we get through to facts, you'll see why I was so kind of puzzled by this. So um, this, I guess, this family, someone by the name of David Kanofsky, went to at your door self storage, and they stored some items, including a um, washing machine. They dropped off a storage vault at their home apparently they yep. filled it up with a bunch of things including a washing machine and tubing and then it got put into a vault someplace in 2012 and washing machines are typically you know what 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 uh item do they get filled with usually clothing and water water yeah right yeah. and then in this is the part i didn't understand about the case is that they dropped it off in 2012 and they didn't go back to their self storage facility in 2016 so four they years. didn't even yeah. four years so they were in prison there, I, maybe prison. maybe prison, prison kidnapped, who uh, knows? Yeah, yeah, went on like a pilgrimage for four years. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. And then they come back after four years and they open it up and apparently it has all kinds of water damage, right? Shocking. So 
the people had signed a agreement that they were assuming responsibility and loss of their Meaning own Meaning the property. people dropping off the, right. the, the storage stuff. And not just, but Brian's kind of underplaying that. Part of the agreement says, in, in capital letters, water damage, these stealth storage units, and it specifically says that there's a risk of water damage, and then it says we, we, we're not it, responsible It specifically for that. talks about water damage. That's right. right? And so, then it offers insurance as well. Yeah, and that's a big deal here too, which is there's insurance, so they can, they can um, absolve themselves of the risk by purchasing the insurance. There's a lot of litigation about that insurance that's gone on. That's one of the reasons why I put this case. But ultimately, what the court says in this case is, look, this is a legal shifting of the risk because of the agreement that exists. They even go so far as the plaintiff in this case goes so far as to cite a case about Bailey's and Baylor's and somebody who actually willfully takes control of of a um, of an asset or of property, a chattel, something like that. And they say that the difference there is that you voluntarily put your property in this storage. You agreed to in writing, and the shifting of the risks exists. So one of the problems is, you know, what do you have? What happens if this water could have come from them? What if it was a fire caused by some other source? Right. I think that wouldn't be as clear clear cut of a I don't situation. Know. I, don't I don't know. know. I don't know. Yeah, we're kind of joking about this case, but but I think you know you can't take this because I don't like releases that purport to release something you're not envisioning, or or I don't like people or applying perspective. I perspectively mean, it, it releasing gives, something. It gives yeah. the storage facility sort of the license to do whatever it wants, but. What the court's saying is you're signing an agreement, you understand what the risks are, you understand that you're assuming the risk. If they engaged in actual negligence, if you could pin them on actual negligence, would it be a different result? Don't Not know. in this. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so in this situation. I don't think so, as much as it pains me to say it. So, interesting so, case. Yeah, um, probably small case. It is right, or, right or wrong decision, Brian? Uh, I think it's probably the right decision. I think it's the right decision based on stare decisis because there's a lot of cases on this issue that have skirted around this issue, have dealt with this issue. Yeah. And yeah. it affects a lot of people because people do have a, a, a lot of their belongings in storage. I'm sure, Sean, there's many times in your life when you've been kicked out of your house that you have to put your belongings <laughs> yep. in storage, right? Yep. Okay. So let's go to a, a, actually a significant. That was a joke. That was a joke. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What's our next case, Brian? In, in case your mom's listening, right? Yeah. Uh, let's go to a case that I think is actually a significant, important case and involves an interesting procedural history. It's called Chen versus Los Angeles Truck Centers. This case at its core involves a um, fatal accident and a very serious injury accident involving a tour bus um, in, I think, in Arizona. Is that where the Grand Canyon is located? The Grand Canyon is located in Arizona. So a uh, California driver for a California tour company went and picked up a group of Chinese tourists from Las Vegas, Nevada. Which is in Arizona? Nope. Where Guess is again. It? Guess again. L- California? Nope. So Las Vegas is? Nevada. Okay. Nevada. So, and uh, was taking them from Las Vegas over to the Grand Canyon. Now, what do Nevada and Arizona have in common? They're not in California. They're both not California. That's right. right. So the accident occurs, all kidding aside, this very serious rollover accident occurs in Meatview or Medview, Arizona. I like Meatview. Is it Meatview? It has a D in there. There is no T. Meatview. Meatview, Arizona. And two people die. Uh, and bus rolls over twice. A bunch of people get seriously injured. And that's so, not funny. But, but that's not funny. So here are the parties in the case. California driver, California tour company. Um, you have a California bus uh, retailer. Distributor. Or distributor. And then you have an Indiana bus manufacturer and outfitter. 
And, the and those question, are all the defendants. Right. And the important question that came up here was which product liability law applied because there was a lack of seatbelts in, in yeah. the inside Cho- the Choice of law issue. So what happens in the lower court before the trial, everyone gets dismissed from the case because there's settlements with everyone, including the Indiana company. But before that happens, the lower court decides that Indiana law applies because there's at that point an Indiana company involved. And Brian's going to talk a little bit more about the choice of law. But at some point, the Indiana defendant is dismissed and there's only one California defendant, the bus distributor that's left in the case. And uh, case and the plaintiff sa- plaintiff makes a motion to have a reconsideration of that choice of law decision. And the trial court says, no, we're sticking with Indiana law. Case proceeds to trial, uses Indiana law for the product's liability question. And ultimately, they lose 10-2 at the trial court level. So they file an appeal and it goes up uh, to the appellate court. Appellate court first says the the lower court screwed up. Indiana law should not have applied because all of the uh, Indiana parties or the only Indiana party was out at that point. California law should have applied. New trial granted. Go back to new trial. Goes up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, and this is kind of like a two-part California Supreme Court. Yes, not the United States Supreme Court. California Supreme Court looks at the issue of what set of facts should be considered when making that uh, choice of law determination? What do you do? When do you consider it? What's, yes. And it becomes, ultimately what it becomes in the California Supreme Court is a ruling on timing. That's right. It's more of like a temporal it, question. Right. right. As that's a big word. That's a big word for me. Many, many syllables. But it's when do you apply which law? That's right. And and you apply the the facts at the time that the case incepts or maybe at the time that the incident happened, you don't apply. They make a distinction between the underlying actual facts of the case and what they call the litigation facts. Who's still in the case? Who got dismissed? Who filed what motion? You don't need to consider what has happened during the pendency of the case. So the fact that the Indiana company is now out shouldn't have a bearing on the choice of law question. And then they say, so So the uh, court of appeal screwed up by, by reversing on that issue. And they say that uh, they remand it back to the court of appeal and they tell them to proceed with that in mind. To determine, to determine at that point in time which law should apply. So it That's goes right. back to the court of appeal. And the Court of Appeal looks at this and they say, okay, well, now with these facts and circumstances and understanding the timing issue, we have to make an evaluation based on choice of law. And should the foreign state law apply or should California law apply? And remember, the key issue here is strict liability versus negligence. Strict liability in California, a much easier standard, a much better standard versus negligence in Indiana, where the court even acknowledges that the Indiana law is designed to protect manufacturing and commercial business of Indiana residents, right? Right. But they don't end there. They say, we've got to apply the governmental interest test, meaning the government, which government law should apply, who has the interest in protecting its law. And the first question is, is the law different? That's easy. Yes, obviously it is. Then the second thing is, if there's a difference, you, you examine each state's interest in the law or in protecting the law. And they say, um, they say, when you look at this, is there a true conflict? And they say, there's no conflict. And it's not that there's no conflict between the states. It's that there's no conflict here in whose interest prevails. Right. And why is that? The, the interest is because they say, and I don't agree with this, they say California's interest is hypothetical. They say California's law's interest is hypothetical because the plaintiffs are not California residents. We know that. They weren't injured in California. And while California may have a theoretical interest in protecting the law, 
and the bus company um, was a California defendant that had sold the bus, in other words, it sold it, but that had no relevance on it because there was no true conflict. And here's where I just struggle with this case. Right. I, I think that the, to categorize California's interest as hypothetical is kind of crazy. So you're okay with a California bus company, a California bus driver, a California bus seller being held to account based on Indiana law? I mean, so just the mere, weird. I guess the mere fact that the bus. And, and I don't know from this case whether it was registered in California or not, but they say because the bus wasn't in California at the time, was started its trip in Arizona, uh, picked up people who were Chinese nationals, obviously not California residents, and um, it, it, that the accident happened outside of California. So then they go on to say that, well, if the occurrence had happened in a California road with California residents, they had been on the tour bus, then it would have been different and our analysis would have been different. But, but under these circumstances, it's not different. But how does that change the fact yeah. that the bus company- Yeah, I struggle with it too. Was It was a company in California that was the distributor. And it could have just been, what if there had been one California resident on that bus? Would you yeah, just would apply be a different it outcome? Yeah. to that person? Or would you apply it across the board? It just doesn't seem workable to me. Right. I think, and and even in that little hypothetical you gave, I think erring on the side of applying California law would be a, a better option. So I don't know that. And and honestly, that you know, those aren't the facts. It's frustrating, um, and we don't know how it would have shaken out if there was a California resident. But, but I would still disagree. I struggle with that. Okay. The next case we have is County of Ventura versus the Public Employment Relations Board. Um, and this is just an interesting question of the joint employer doctrine and who someone's employer is. So basically the SEIU, the Service Employment International Union, wants to organize uh, physician or non-physician employees at some uh, medical center in Ventura, which is privately owned, but they are contracted by the county, right? Right. And um, the- uh, look, the only reason I put this case in here wasn't the, uh, the, the bargaining, the collective bargaining agreement between uh, the county and this public employees relations board. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. SEIU. Um, this was the reason I put this in here was because I see a growing trend in California about the joint employer doctrine. Yeah, it's a big issue because you have subcontractors and you have one person hiring somebody else who goes out and hires people. So over here, the Public Employment Relations Board, which I guess has jurisdiction over stuff like this, says that the um, clinic employees are joint employees, so they're employees of the county. And then the county appeals and says they're not employees of the county. They're private employees. They can't unionize. Well, right. They wanted to unionize. And so that was the real real issue behind this. But really, the reason I want to talk about it is this joint employer doctrine. So a joint... So a joint employer relationship exists when uh, two or more employees exert substantial control over the employee, right? So you could have – but normally it occurs with two. I mean I I could guess it could happen with three or four, but it would happen with two. And control is that question, right? Control is the issue. So if the entity retains control over the employee, even if the employee doesn't technically get his or her paycheck from that employer, there can be joint employer. And in this case – they looked at a number of different factors, right, to determine whether or not um, it was a, a joint employer. So um, there was a shared call system. There were operating agreements. The employees testified that they were constantly required to work interchangeably between the different employees. The county, who is the, the party here that they were trying to hold under the joint employer doctrine, right. the county had the right to control 
uh, patient, the care. patient care, the personnel decisions, right. training, performance reviews. Right. There were terms and conditions that the employees had to file that the county had established. And it was pretty clear that the county had a right, right to control the actual clinics, the places where they worked, where the people worked. And that's the key inquiry here. So based on that, the court says, no, they're joint employers. The the, the Public Employment Relations Board got it right, and that's that. I, I so, just think this is important. Yeah, interesting. The, the expansion of this doctrine is important because it's going to affect tort liability. It's going to affect uh, class action, I, I uh, agree. wage and hour. I agree. It's going to affect all these issues, and especially now as we're moving into an era post-Dynamex, um, post, um, uh, what is it, AB5, AB yeah. where the law is changing, this is going to become a really important issue. Yeah, so yeah. the reason I, you know, I included that case and the reason I included the storage case was I think there are important issues out there. But the Chen case and the case about attorney advertising, and the case, the case about attorney advertising, I think, is important because it affects all of our, our practices in, in, in one way or another. So these are important cases. Appreciate you listening today. We try to do this on a weekly basis. Sean will tell you where you can find us. KBKLawyers.com. Check us out. Come to some of our seminars. Uh, get in touch with us if there's things you want to discuss. We appreciate your feedback. We appreciate you listening if you're still listening and aren't sick of us. Uh, so thanks a lot, and see you next time.